it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show coming to you live from Los Angeles, California, Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock worldwide on demand for free on our podcast after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, everything you need related to the show right there. You can also get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, FoxNewsPodcast.com being a good option. You can follow us on social media as well, both Twitter and Instagram. It's the same handle, at GuyBensonShow. If you are interested in that, here's our lineup today. Mara Liason of NPR will join us later on this hour. Jason Rance, our friend out in Seattle. <laughs> oh, it is it is a mess out there. We'll get an update from him in the next hour. Bill Malugin from the border down in Texas will also be our guest in our middle hour. And speaking of the border, wait to hear what Corinne Jean-Pierre just said at the White House about the border crisis. If you thought what the vice president said, we talked about it yesterday on Meet the Press, was bad, (laughs) Uh, hold on to your hats because the White House press secretary has entered the chat. We'll get to that. And then Larry Kudlow will be here in our final hour giving us his analysis of the truly awful inflation numbers that came out earlier today and the markets are just going crazy. The Dow is currently down 1,100 points. It's down 1,000, there it just went to 1,100 as I spoke. Down 1,100 points at this hour. We'll get you a final number when the markets close in about 52 minutes. But the reason that that reaction is playing out on Wall Street is because the numbers are worse than expected in August. So just cue the spin from the White House about how these are backward-looking numbers and all the talking points that they always go to. U.S. inflation, the top line was 8.3%, which is just extremely high to begin with and also worse than expected. And Josh Wingrove of Bloomberg describing this says it's a bad inflation report for the United States. Core CPI, core inflation, month over month, rose 0.6%, doubling that forecast. The top line overall on inflation rose 0.1% instead of a decline that was projected by most experts. So when you look at the year-over-year figure, so month-over-month it was up as opposed to down. Core inflation more than double what they were expecting in terms of the increase. And year-over-year you look at key commodities and areas, and it's just brutal. And you're seeing core inflation go up despite... Gas prices coming down, which is something I know that Biden is trying to take credit for, even though he had nothing to do with it. When they were going up, he said, I have no control. Now that they're coming down, he tries to take credit. I think he's fooling almost no one. Right. Based on his previous rhetoric, we should all be thanking Vladimir Putin and the uh, 
oil companies for being less greedy or something like that. So that's like the one bright spot that isn't necessarily going to remain bright. But for now, gas prices, while still way higher than they were a year or certainly two years ago, they're way up overall, but they are down from their peaks. That's just a little bit of relief. And despite that, we're seeing these broader numbers get worse. You look at food costs, the food index up double digits over the last year, the largest 12-month increase since 1979. You look at food at home up 13.5% in the past year, also the largest since 79. Rent up 6.7% in the past year. The largest since 1986, electricity, 16% almost, largest since 81. Health insurance, hello, Affordable Care Act. Health insurance up 24%, the largest ever increase. So that's the backdrop for, if you can believe it, something that's happening at the White House right now. The White House is holding a celebration event with the president on the so-called Inflation Reduction Act that the Democrats passed a few weeks ago in a party-line vote with zero Republicans in support because it was such an awful bill. They called it the Inflation Reduction Act. Polls show that no one believes it's going to reduce inflation. It's like 12, 15, 20 percent are willing to go along with that spin. Everyone else thinks it will make no difference or make things worse, as we've seen in the polling. CBO threw even more cold water on the deficit reduction component of it, which was the fig leaf on inflation reduction, which, by the way, got immediately wiped out by Biden's scheme and giveaway, which I think is unlawful, on the student debt forgiveness plan, which was another inflation bomb on top of the American Rescue Plan. Remember that? Almost $2 trillion. Huge inflation bomb. Back at the beginning of his presidency, he said, oh, no, won't be inflationary. Don't listen to those people. No one's worried about inflation. Wrong. Then inflation started creeping up and up and up. They said, don't worry, it's transitory. We think it's peaked. And look where we are now. Then they shoveled hundreds of billions of dollars out the door again just a few weeks ago. They slapped the label Inflation Reduction Act on it. And on the day that we got this report that has driven the markets, what, the Dow down 1,100 points, a lot of alarm bells ringing, even Democratic economists saying, whoa, this report is not good, and listing the reasons for their concerns. It is literally today that they are hosting the celebration event at the White House on the Inflation Reduction Act. It is just, you know, chef's kiss timing from this gang. And Corinne Jean-Pierre was asked about this at the White House briefing. And she's just sticking to the script. Hey, it's historic, she said. Well, I mean, yes, in some ways it is historic. Probably not in the way that they want it to be. And then here's her answer, trying to talk about inflation and square the circle. It's just painful. Cut 23. 
What is your message to Americans who are seeing these rising costs? And are you confident that you're doing enough to, to finally bring these down? So look, the president has said for uh, some time now, when it comes to his, uh, his number one economic priority, is to deal with inflation, is to make sure that we are lowering costs for Americans people, for the American people, for American families, Americans who have to come around the table, uh, you know, once a month in, in particular to figure out how are they going to pay those bills. Again, this is why the event that we're having uh, in less than 45 minutes to, to uh, celebrate and talk talk about, you're here from the president about the Inflation Reduction Act, is so critical. That is why Democrats and this president uh, took, took the, you know, did the hard work to get that done. Mm. All that hard work. And that's why they're having the event right now. As I speak, this thing is underway at the White House. President Biden tweeting earlier, under at POTUS, exactly four weeks ago, I signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. So today we're celebrating. Of all days, today we're celebrating, Biden says, in the context of inflation. It's amazing. So, in fact, let's uh, let's celebrate together as we run through some of the numbers. So hit it, Dan. Overall inflation up 8.3 percent year over year. Up month over month compared to expectations. Core inflation up, blowing out expectations in a very concerning way. Gas, year over year, up 26%. Fuel oil, up 69%. Electricity, up 16%. Groceries, 13.5%. Specifically, meat, poultry, and fish, 8.8%. Milk, 17%. This is all year over year. Eggs, almost 40%. Baby food, if you can find the formula at least, plus 12.6%, airline fares, 33% up. And then here's the big one, real average hourly earnings, what people are taking home, what it can actually buy, down almost 3% year over year. People are getting crushed. The wage and hourly income increases that they are seeing nominally are getting swamped and overwhelmed by inflation. And so real wages are down. Americans are losing purchasing power year over year. Month after month after month after month this has happened. And I think the White House, a lot of experts as well, were expecting that today, you know, wouldn't be good. There's not going to be good news on inflation, but it would be just sort of part of the story they're trying to tell it's getting a little bit better. And then this report drops, and it's worse. And they've already scheduled a celebratory event at the White House literally on the issue of inflation. It's astonishing. Jason Furman is an Obama-era economist from the administration. He tweeted earlier that the August CPI report on inflation is, quote, not pretty. And he said that based on what he's seeing in these numbers, broad-based inflation relief for the American people, quote, is not coming. He says, my interpretation, a lot of things that were supposed to bring down inflation have happened. But it's not working. In sum, this was a Twitter thread that he went on, core inflation is running Four and a half percentage points above the Fed's target. 
Some of it might be quirks, he says. Some of it might be transitory. But it's hard to escape some concept of underlying inflation running well above the Fed's target. So he says, his conclusion, soft landing odds down. Meaning the avoidance of a more painful and jarring recession because of what the Fed's going to have to do in response to the ongoing, clear and present threat of inflation. It's going to be more draconian, more serious, less likely for the soft landing that they're trying to do in terms of like, you know, threading the needle here. So that's the reality today. You look at the problem that we have. I know that what we hear from Democrats and from the White House is, oh, well, look, there is inflation. It's not our fault. It's a global phenomenon out of our control. Just like they were talking about gas prices, right? Things are out of their control when it's bad and then in their control when it gets better. It's just like, you know, insulting. But as we have noted... Especially over the summer, when you look at much of the rest of the Western world, our inflation is worse. Look at the Eurozone, look at a number of other countries, our inflation is worse. Why? Well, part of it could be Mark Goldwyn, who we had on the show recently from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. He just went through the big ticket items. President Biden has added nearly $5 trillion to the deficits. In not even two years, we're not even two years into this guy, $4.8 trillion added to deficits, including the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion. The student debt relief scheme, they're estimating that at $750 billion. The infrastructure law, other laws, executive actions, and then, of course, interest on top of all of it. You cannot tell me, and you cannot tell the American people, That this orgy of spending, which comes on the heels of trillions of dollars going out the door during the heart of the pandemic, which was a bipartisan thing under Trump. We were shutting down the economy. Stuff had to be done. Unfortunately, we were in a bad fiscal situation already, which doesn't help when real bona fide emergencies arrive. But that's what happened. What, $6 trillion went flying out of the coffers. And then the Democrats said, actually, we need more. We, we need more emergency spending on COVID. All the core stuff for testing and vaccines and all of that, it's just, it's gone. We, we need more. That was something that they came back with very quickly. Meanwhile, they have been spending trillions of dollars while insisting that it will have no impact on inflation. And then when it does, they tell you, don't worry, it's going to be quick, it's going to be relatively painless, and it's not our fault. Over and over again. And to, again, quote the president, literally today, we're celebrating. That's the Inflation Reduction Act. On a day that inflation has missed expectations in multiple problematic and painful ways for the American people. And we've run through those numbers. David Harsanyi, who was at National Review, now he's back at the Federalist. He had, I think, a very succinct summary on Twitter of what's happening. This is the Democratic mentality when you look at inflation, when you look at what they've done on the so-called Inflation Reduction Act and all the green policies, when you look at Biden and this student loan forgiveness thing. 
Harsanyi tweets, Sure, grocery prices are up 13%, but don't worry. You're also paying for your neighbor's grad school degree and his Tesla. I mean, that is a pretty good fired-off tweet right there. Really getting to the core and the heart of the problem in just a few characters on the old Twitter machine. This is democratic governance at work. Unified democratic control. The Democrats have been in charge of Washington, D.C. for two years. These are the results. We are less than two months out from an election. I would say you know what to do. Show up, first and foremost. There's a lot at stake. And the Guy Benson Show, just getting started from L.A. today, will be right back after these messages. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson, and we're back. So we came on the air minutes ago, and I was telling you about the numbers on inflation. How dreadful they are. Worse than expected. Juxtaposing that with the celebration at the White House, President Biden and the Democrats for their Inflation Reduction Act, which has nothing to do with inflation and obviously has not worked on that front, and no one's expecting it to. But they chose quite a day for this little event. And apparently they had James Taylor with his acoustic guitar and a little hat on on the South Lawn playing Fire and Rain. That's the soundtrack for the little party they're having on inflation. I've seen fire, I've seen rain. Yeah, that's how a lot of Americans are feeling today, James. Thanks. Thanks for the background music to this pain. (laughs) I mean, I'm laughing because you can't make it up. Maybe they thought that the numbers today would be better and they'd have like this big happy event and they can be like, look at what we've done. You're welcome, America. Inflation reduction. Get James Taylor over here. Play your songs, James. Get POTUS out here. Get him reading something off a teleprompter ASAP. And now you've got this side-by-side that is just, I mean, tone deaf doesn't even begin to cover it. Oh, and... KJP, the spokeswoman, saying, well, actually, prices are essentially flat in America. Is that how it feels right now? Flat flat costs, flat prices? I don't think so. Especially with wages, real wages down. Oh, we haven't even gotten to what she said on, in, on immigration yet, the border crisis. Just knocked my socks off, like, jaw-dropping. We'll cover that later this hour. Mara Eliason, though, up next, Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. 
That's our website. Podcast is free and on demand every day. Pleased to welcome back to the show now Mara Lyason, national political correspondent for NPR and a Fox News contributor. Mara, always good to hear your voice. Happy to be here. I want to ask you, we were just talking about this in the last segment, this side-by-side split screen right now of the Dow getting just crushed after this inflation report landed today that has a lot of analysts, including Democratic economists, quite worried about what it's showing. The Dow is down almost 1,300 points right now. And the White House is holding a celebration event with James Taylor crooning, and they're all out there, all smiles about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. On this day, I just wonder what you make, at least of the optics of this. Well, look, this was a ceremony that was planned in advance before they knew what the numbers would be. And of course, the Inflation Reduction Act actually has much less to do with reducing inflation than it does with a lot of other things the Democrats have wanted for a long time, like lowering the cost of prescription drugs, climate change. But because inflation is the number one issue, they decided to name it the Inflation Reduction Act. And here they are holding the ceremony on a day that inflation did not go down, but went up. Look, this is a confusing economy. Sometimes I call it the doom and boom economy or the gloom and boom economy because there are a lot of things that are good about the economy. Job growth is good. Wages for blue-collar jobs are up. But inflation, which is the single most important economic indicator because it affects every single person and every single family, is really high, even though it's come down a little bit recently. So it's a confusing economy. It's an economy that right now for the midterm elections is working against the president and his party. Um, And they were hoping for a little more of a break than they got today with the news. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And I think the problem when they cite wages, for example, is when you look at real wages and real earnings, they're down, right? On paper, they're up. And then when you factor in inflation, all of that progress gets wiped out and then some. And that's where people feel like they're treading water and sort of drowning a little bit, where they're working hard. They feel like they should be gaining more traction and more purchasing power. And yet the cost of whether it's paying the rent or groceries or, you know, their electric bill, you fill in the blank, it's – it, it is swallowing up some of these nominal gains, and that's why I think you see the Democrats sometimes citing you know, the wage numbers in a vacuum as opposed to the real wage numbers, real hourly earnings, uh, earnings rather, down almost 3% year over year in this new report. That, I think, is, again, part of the challenge that they're facing, a reality challenge and a messaging challenge when they're trying to celebrate reduction of inflation, which isn't actually happening. It just seems suboptimal. From a political standpoint, look, inflation defeats presidents. Inflation, as I said, is the most important economic indicator because it affects everybody uh, every single day at the pump, at the grocery store. And it means that, yeah, your new job and your raise is eaten away. Uh, So, yeah, it's a real problem. And there's not much that the White House can do about it, even though they just passed the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. Yeah, I wonder if there might be a stern conversation with someone like, hey, did we have to um, schedule this event for the day that the report was coming out, not knowing what the report was going to show? I mean, maybe they could have rolled the dice, and if it was a better report, 
it would align and they'd have a little bit of a political moment today. But the, the, the risk, the downside was significant, and we're watching that play out literally before our eyes right now. Um, Mara, I do want to ask you, on the midterms, former President Trump has been much more central to our political conversation broadly in the last few months than he had been for a while. I know Democrats are more than happy to have that conversation. I think that helps explain any number of moves, including the the speech that the president gave in Philadelphia uh, before Labor Day about threats to democracy and all of that. I wonder how you see the former president and the factor that he might be playing in the midterms, because Democrats seem to think that more Trump out there in the bloodstream is better for them. And then Trump supporters would say, well, that's what they might believe, but he's energizing to us and intensity matters. How does that wash out in your view? Well, that's really interesting. And this has always been the equation that's been difficult to parse about Trump. He energizes his base. They get more and more intensely loyal to him. But there's no signs that he's necessarily expanding that base among independents. So, yes, any day that the Democrats can talk about Trump instead of inflation is a good day for them. And for Republicans, they would rather the spotlight not be on Trump so they can talk about inflation. Uh, And this is a problem. Now, in the primaries, Trump was a huge, important factor. Uh, The vast majority of the candidates that he endorsed won. And uh, there are a lot of what you might call Trumpist candidates Uh, now facing general election opponents. We're going to see if they're as strong in the general election as they were in the primaries. But uh, I think that Trump is net, net, net in these midterms probably a better thing for Democrats than Republicans because he is so polarizing. And don't forget, he's not just a former president. He's a former president facing a multitude of investigations. Yep. And someone who might, in that context, be running again, And I think you're right. The media is happy, not even happy, thrilled to talk about him. The Democrats thrilled to talk about him. And Republicans kind of have to do this dance where they're defending him to not annoy and tick off and, you know, piss off the base ahead of a midterm. But they also would love to be talking about many other things. For example, the topic that we spent the first half hour of today's show on, you know, and then, you know, 40 minutes of the show, uh, inflation, the number one issue to voters In the same vein, uh, Mara, you were just talking about how the Democrats are sort of playing this. Vice President Kamala Harris was asked by Chuck Todd on Sunday on Meet the Press about a controversial strategy within Democratic politics. I believe it's the Washington Post that tallied it all up, and the number is somewhere north of $50 million the Democrats have spent boosting the very types of Republican, quote-unquote, MAGA, threat-to-democracy candidates that President Biden and Democrats have been denouncing denouncing as very dangerous to the future of the republic, and we need good people to come together and oppose this ideology and you know election denial and all that sort of thing. And then that's what they're saying, and then what they're doing is spending tens of millions of dollars to get those types of folks nominated. Harris was asked about this. She wouldn't denounce it. She said she doesn't want to tell anyone else how to run their campaigns. She was asked if she would do it in her own campaign, and she wouldn't answer that either. Speaker Pelosi has said basically with a shrug, look, you got to win elections. I understand the power play and the calculus here that they are uh, attempting. I wonder on the cynicism scale, where does it rank for you, given their rhetoric related to this stuff? And do you think 
it'll work? Do you think it could backfire? What's your thought process on that? Well, in terms of on the cynicism scale, I think it's pinging in the red. I can't think of anything more cynical than this. Now, it's not new. Parties have a history of meddling in each other's primaries so that they can they try to uh, maneuver to get the candidate they think is the most beatable in the general election. It's happened before. That's but right. I think now at a time when uh, the president of the United States and um, m- the vast majority of his party believe that MAGA Republicans, defined as Republicans who don't accept the results of free and fair elections, uh, deemed free and fair by the independent judiciary, if they think that's a real threat to democracy, then it's not just the height of cynicism, but it really shows a complete lack of principle to be promoting those candidates. Now, Democrats who are running these ads in favor of the MAGA Republicans will say, well, we're not promoting them. We're merely pointing out that they are the Trumpiest candidate, which is true. But I think there's also a little bit of beware of what you wish for. You just might get it. You know, you promote these candidates. Democrats spend $50 million to promote these candidates. What happens if they win? Which they could. Yep, especially if you have, you know, a wave that develops. Sometimes some interesting folks get themselves elected in waves like that. I mean, there was, you know, I just think back to last year in New Jersey, where the electorate shifted 11 points to the right compared to 2020. And the Senate president, who was a Democratic leader in in the State House in New Jersey was defeated by a truck driver with no budget and no political experience. I mean, you put someone on a ballot and they're representing one of the two major parties. There's a there's a non-zero chance that person wins, especially when an environment is shaping up potentially the way that this one is. And it just I agree with you. Pinging in the red, I think, is a good way of putting it. I also think it suggests that maybe they don't really believe what they're saying as ardently and urgently as they claim to, because if they actually believed these things, they wouldn't they wouldn't do what they're doing. And even if you could have, you know, some pack with plausible deniability of the people in charge doing it, maybe that's another story. But these are the official campaign arms and leadership packs of the Democratic Party. This is this is a strategy coming from the top, it seems. And, and it's hard to reconcile these these two factors, at least in my mind. I've, I've definitely heard this argument that if you think these people are such a threat to democracy, why would you support them regardless of your tactics, you know, or trying to be too clever by half, et cetera? Mm-hmm. In other words, it's just you must you must not be that scared about democracy if you're willing to take a risk. Right. Uh, that one of these people might actually end up winning a general election. I think that's a very valid point. And that's and just to put this on the other shoe part of the reason that i was not rooting on elizabeth warren or bernie sanders and these are not exactly analogous but in 2020 i was more comfortable with the democrats nominating joe biden even though i felt like he might have a better chance of winning the election because if he got elected now i mean he is he is governed pretty left in my opinion but i was not eager for them to nominate bernie sanders just because it would be theoretically hypothetically easier to beat bernie sanders because there'd be again a significant chance that bernie could maybe win a national election then you've got in my mind a socialist running the country i wasn't going to root for that even in the short term because i thought maybe it would be better i mean maybe in certain you know house or senate races and you want to have a kookier person running, you know, against the Republican as a conservative, fine. But 
the stakes that the Democrats are laying out here, they say must transcend partisan politics. And then it is clearly the opposite in terms of what they're doing with their time, with their resources, with their money. Last question, Mara Lyason, I want to ask you about this dance that Democrats are doing with Joe Biden, because there's this somewhat awkward dance of a lot of Republican candidates with Donald Trump that we talked about a moment ago. On the other side of the aisle, you have, for example, Senator Mark Kelly out in Arizona, who's, I think, going to be in a very tough race. Um, He's had a lead. He's got a huge fundraising advantage. But a few of the polls I've seen recently, it's getting to be margin of error. I think it's going to be very tight. Joe Biden, not popular in the state of Arizona. He was on a local news station, and they asked him about Biden. And you can almost feel the visceral, not panic, but discomfort in answering the question in cut six. Listen. Your thoughts on his job. Has he done a good job, do you think? Hey, you know, I... You know, first of all, it's not my job to give him a report card. Uh, That's a bit of a a tricky answer there, Mara. But you know what's so interesting about that is that that is the the question that is the most easy to anticipate. I mean, every Democrat is going to be asked about Joe Biden. I'm surprised he didn't have something, you know, ready to go. Uh, You know, other people have said, you know, hope he doesn't run again. Time for new generation, new blood, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, look, people, uh, Democrats know that Joe Biden is unpopular. Midterm elections are usually a referendum on the president and the party in power. And um, but on the other hand, they have a base who feels that Joe Biden has actually done a pretty good job, especially lately, kind of climbed out of a hole, passed a bunch of legislation. COVID seemed to be mitigating, inflation mitigating a little bit, war in Ukraine going pretty well. So they're doing a, a difficult balancing act, too. Mara Eliasson, national political correspondent at NPR and a Fox News contributor. Mara, we always enjoy our time together here on the air and in the green room as we spent the other day. Great to talk to you. We'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Mara Eliasson on The Guy Benson Show. When we come back, wait till you hear this soundbite. Corinne Jean-Pierre on the border crisis, alternate reality stuff when we return. Guy Benson will be right back. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. President Biden is speaking right now at their inflation reduction event on a day with a terrible inflation number and report for August. Extremely awkward politically for them. Good timing, guys. Slow clap. Uh, We are not going to dip into that. I'm not subjecting you to that. A bunch of spin with speeches that were probably preloaded before the bad news dropped. It's just we're not we're not going there. What I will do is play this soundbite. <laughs> I'm just, sometimes you just have to stand back and marvel. This is on the border crisis. Corinne Jean-Pierre, who just recently said that the schools got reopened because of Democrats and the Democrat leadership against Republicans and Republican opposition and all the mismanagement of Trump, right? Kind of blaming the school closures on Trump. Amazing. The, the inverse of the truth. We talked about that a lot here on the show. Well, now she's doing basically the exact same thing on the border. This was earlier today, earlier this afternoon, cut 25. We're certainly uh, doing a lot more to secure the border and could be doing even more if Republicans would stop their obstruction. I, 
what can you say? She was comparing their approach with the Trump administration approach and saying that we're doing a lot more. Biden, Team Biden, doing a lot more to secure the border than the Trump administration did. And it would be even better if not for the obstruction of the Republicans in Congress. What the actual hell is she talking about? Really? What what obstruction is she talking about? Democrats have control of everything. And there has been no serious proposal to curb the border crisis that the Democrats have put out. What they talk about is like amnesties and, and stuff like that, which would make the problem worse. Maybe just in her little binder, it says blame Republicans. It's like no matter what. Oh, well, the Republicans are obstructing or something. They're doing a lot more to secure the border than the last administration. What? Let's just look at the numbers. It's almost like not even worth dignifying this with a rational, fact-based response because that's not the world that she apparently is operating in. They've got, what, almost a million gotaways under President Biden. It's just unprecedented. The level of this crisis is unprecedented. Everyone seems to agree on that, I guess, except at the White House. In July... The last month that we have the data for, there were 200,000 encounters at the border. Not counting tens of thousands of known gotaways. 200,000 in July. In July of 2019, before COVID, on Trump's watch, it was 82,000, more than double. Go back to April, 236,000 encounters under Biden, April 2022. April 2019, 109,000, more than double. What, there are north of 3 million known illegal crossings under this president already and counting? And they say, oh, we're, we're doing more than Trump did. And it's really the Republicans' fault. Breathtaking. Another hour of The Guy Benson Show, straight ahead. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Live in L.A., it's the Guy Benson Show today. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast free on demand seven days a week. That's at GuyBensonShow.com or foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. That's Twitter and Instagram. A lot to get to here on the program. As we enter our middle hour, though, here's a Fox News alert. We always give you an update on the markets after things close down on Wall Street, and today is a doozy. The Dow at the close down 1,276 points. Ending at 31,104, a drop in nearly 4% today. This coming after a dreadful uh, inflation report, rather, dropped this morning, where some of the key numbers were worse than expected. As stated and admitted even by a number of left-leaning and Democratic-aligned economists, I think there was an expectation of more progress, still not great, still too painful, but look, we're making progress, and that might be why 
The Biden White House scheduled a big celebration today happening now at the White House on inflation and reducing it with the Reduction Inflation Act, which actually doesn't reduce inflation. The split screen is remarkable. With the CPI report and the Dow and the markets on one side, and then James Taylor strumming his guitar and high-fiving Democrats celebrating what they've done, not on a separate issue, but supposedly on the same issue. It's astounding. In any case, let's bring in our next guest. Jason Rance is host of The Jason Rance Show, KTTH, out in Seattle, Tacoma, our affiliate here on the show out there. And Jason, it's always good to have you back. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So we just talked to Tiffany Smiley, who's running for Senate out there on the show yesterday. She struck me as very impressive. And she also seems to have some things to work with out in Washington state, where they're letting murderers back out on the streets while the police department of Seattle uh, crumbles and, you know, disintegrates with people leaving the force. And you've got the teachers union, what, canceling the first, what was it, five or six days of school with a strike? Um, Maybe not the best situation for families and law-abiding citizens in the state of Washington these days. No, clearly not. We have so many problems across the state, and it would be one thing if Patty Murray was at least trying to address some of them. It might make it a little bit more difficult for some Democrats to justify jumping ship. But at this point, I I think I could go up to any random person on the street, and 100% of them will not be able to tell me a signature accomplishment from Patty Murray. Maybe every once in a while you'll get someone who says, well, she's in leadership, but they won't actually tell me what she did. And the fact of the matter is she hasn't done much for Washington. And we can tell just from the ideas that Tiffany Smiley is putting out there, actually, and I know that this is going to be controversial, but punish criminals who break the law. Like, oh, these are whoa. these are pretty Slow basic. down there, Jason. I, I know. I, to me, they seem basic, <laughs> but I know it's like sort of this earth-shattering idea for, for folks, particularly in Seattle. But, I mean, the reason why she's doing so well in the polls is she's actually speaking to some of the issues. And the more people who actually hear from her and meet her they are more likely to want to support her than Patty Murray, who's just basically been absent from, from everything that she does here. And, you know, there, there was a CNN interview a couple of weeks ago. Patty Murray basically defends, even in retrospect, she defends the idea of closing down schools during COVID. That is absurd. That, that is a dangerous position for anyone to take if you know in retrospect that that was the wrong move to simply say, oh, no, I, I still would have done it even in retrospect. Well, then you want to hurt kids. You want to harm kids, and that's dangerous. Yeah, and because we have the numbers, right? The numbers were, in fact, recited to her in that interview, and she's like, I see the massive harm done to children, and I say no regrets. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm... Paraphrasing, but not really all that far off from what she actually said, what her actual position is. Now, you know better than I do, or at least as well as anyone else, that Patty Murray is still, in all likelihood, the leader in the race, the likeliest person to win that contest because the state is so deep blue, gluttons for punishment. seems like you cannot push the people of Washington too far from the left. They will pull the lever for Democrats almost instinctively. However... 
it's at least close enough that I think there's some jitters on the Democratic side. And if certain stars were to align over the next two months, there's a puncher's chance here, I think, for Smiley, maybe to pull the massive upset. I agree. It's not going to be easy, and anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. It is not easy for a Republican to win statewide office in Washington state and, in, frankly, in western Washington. It's just not easy. And the reason why, however, you're seeing some of the folks get a little bit nervous is not just the polling, which depending on the poll, there's an anomaly poll that shows Tiffany Smiley within like three or four points. The other ones have it a little bit more of an advantage to Patty Murray. But people are wondering whether or not the polls are accurate. And when we're talking about statewide polls in Washington, they're not always the best. But there was this New York Times piece, I think it was yesterday with Nate Cohn, basically said some of the same problems that existed back when Trump was was going up against Clinton, they haven't been addressed. And I remember at the time, that night, I was telling people and bleeding into the election, like if Trump is behind by three or four points, he's going to win this because you're not getting in front of the average voter that we expect to come out for this kind of an election. And I, I have that feeling with this senatorial race as well. Now, again, not going to be easy. However, mm-hmm. if she's able to raise the money, if she's able to get in front of people, that's when she does well. Right now, she still has low name recognition relative to Patty Murray. When you're in office for 112 years, you have really high name recognition. But Patty Murray isn't really even breaking 50 percent in the polls. And and for an incumbent who's been in office for as long as she has, that that I do think shows a vulnerability. Especially in a state that is so deeply Democratic and so deep blue in a lot of ways. Jason, I mentioned the teacher strike. It's like another F you to parents to start this school year. Uh, Then there's the crime stuff. And Tiffany Smiley homed in on that yesterday during our interview. You've written about this. I see you've been tweeting about it as well. Some new social justice and I don't even know what you want to call it, reform, like criminal justice reform laws that the Democrats in Washington are pushing and have pushed through uh, really a, a boon not just to you know criminals or people who have committed nonviolent offenses but to some of the most dangerous hardened criminals in the state and when you put that next to the police force in the largest city in the state dwindling away through attrition uh, that is a, a pretty tough one two punch what can you tell us on those issues we are releasing murderers from jail, and it is intentional. So a couple of years ago, the Democrats in Washington decided to remove secondary robbery from the list of felonies punishable under our three strikes law. So three strikes, felonies, you get to go to jail for life. So they removed second-degree robbery. However, last year, they decided to retroactively apply that law. Which means now Roy Russell, who back in 2005, when he was 45 years old, he raped a 14-year-old girl. He attempted to rape her, and then he murdered her. He strangled her to death. He was sentenced under the three strikes law because one of his felonies was second-degree robbery. And as a result of this now, he no longer will be serving life in prison. There is a possibility, depending on how the judge rules, that he will be out of jail within three or four years making things even worse than that. You've got our state Supreme Court deciding that any young person who was sentenced to life in jail, and so for something like that, it's because of murder, you have to go back and resentence them, taking into consideration their age, because based on someone's age, if they're too young, apparently they don't know that murder is wrong. 
which is kind of weird for me uh, in this state because we say a 13-year-old can go through gender reassignment surgery without parental consent, but apparently they don't realize at that age that murder is wrong. And so what we're seeing now is a whole bunch of murderers who are being released from jail by judges who are now resentencing. You had at the time, he was 20 years old, Arthur Longworth. He murdered a woman in Seattle and dumped her body in Snohomish County up north. A judge reduced his sentence. And now he's going to be released soon. You've got a guy named Bruce uh, – I can't remember his last name. Bruce something. He was – at the time, he was 16 years old. He murdered his parents and his five-year-old brother. He's going to be released soon. These are people who committed horrible acts of violence that anyone – who's looking at this reasonably would say, of course they know what they did was wrong, and they knew there would be consequences. We're releasing these people from jail, and that's not to mention the people who are committing violent acts or nonviolent crimes but are prolific offenders who are not even putting in jail to begin with. Yeah, and not even you know keeping them in jail is booking them and then releasing them, as we're seeing in a lot of other places. And then in Seattle, biggest city in your state, There'll be fewer and fewer police officers available to protect the public from these people. It's just this fascinating spiral, and voters in Washington might say, yes, more of this, please. Uh, We'll see you in November. Jason Rance, KTTH, our friend. Jason, always appreciate it. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks for listening. I want to give you an update, and it's a good one. In the realm of woke tales. Woke tales. This is a story that we have been following, or at least I have, and we've mentioned it on the air multiple times, since an incident occurred in Ohio back in 2016. Oberlin, Ohio, home to Oberlin College, a famously left-wing place. There was a little mom-and-pop, family-owned bakery called Gibson's. You might remember this. They were just minding their own business, operating their bakery as they had for decades. When in 2016 there was a shoplifting incident involving a small handful of Oberlin students who happened to be black. And this blew up into a huge, angry series of allegations that the bakery was in the wrong and that they were racist and there was a racial component to this. It was a disgusting smear. It was completely unfair, but it wasn't just a bunch of whiny activists on campus who got in on the act. The college itself, in some significant ways, aided and abetted the smear, joined in on it, added to the slander with university personnel making statements, with policies vis-a-vis the bakery and cutting them off from any business with the college, There was real damage done to Gibson's Bakery, so they sued. And as I've said, as not a litigious person, I think sometimes with the excesses of wokeism and identity politics, these days the only recourse that some individuals or businesses or entities have is to use lawsuits and the legal system to defend themselves and to fight back. That's what Gibson's did. I'm glad that they did. And they won a huge verdict years later from a jury in Ohio. Now, Oberlin College has been fighting that verdict in court and appealing for years since. Several high-profile members of this family have died. This has taken so long. But we reported to you a couple months ago 
that an appeals court upheld the verdict, which was tens of millions of dollars. And it seemed like the saga might finally be over. But no, Oberlin kept appealing. I guess they just wanted to throw more money at the problem and get their attorneys to try to make this go away. And the good news is, last week, the Ohio Supreme Court declined to take up the challenge, basically leaving all the previous judgments in place. And at long last, Oberlin College has cried uncle, and they are going to do what they were ordered to do and pay nearly $37 million in damages to this bakery. Plus all the legal fees that they had to incur over the course of this losing fight, all driven by a racial smear that they joined in on because that was the moment, right? That is what some of their activist students required of them. That was sort of the expectation in a milieu like Oberlin, Ohio in 2016 with Donald Trump on the ballot and all of that happening. And sometimes I think, especially for colleges and universities, the only way you get their attention is to hit them right where it hurts, which is what has happened here. And so they've run to the end of the line. They have exhausted their options. And now this big payout is coming to the bakery. The family attorney for Gibson's Bakery saying, the Gibsons will now be able to rebuild the business their family started 137 years ago and keep the lights on for another generation. I suspect $37 million might be able to keep the lights on for quite some time at a bakery in Ohio. But one thing I want to point out about this, the media just can't really help itself in covering this resolution, the denouement of this years-long drama You had the New York Times framing it this way. Oberlin College has agreed to pay $36.59 million to a bakery that said it was falsely accused of racism after it caught a student shoplifting. CNN also said that the bakery owners claimed that they had been accused falsely of racism. So here's the problem, I think, with the framing there, just acting sort of as an after-the-fact editor for the New York Times in this capacity. Oberlin College didn't really agree to anything, right? They were sued. They fought it in court for years, one step after another, tooth and nail to avoid this till they couldn't anymore because they were ordered to pay the money. This makes it seem like it was just a voluntary decision, In this unresolved dispute between two parties, one said this, right? The family said it was falsely accused of racism, and then Oberlin agreed to pay this money. I guess that's true in the same sense that I agree to pay my taxes, right? I should put out a press release every April. Benson agrees to pay required tax burden under penalty of prison. It's just very generous of me, isn't it? And by the way, CNN, the bakery owners claimed that they were falsely accused of racism because they were falsely accused of racism. That's what the whole case was about. The facts of the case were presented to a jury, which sided with the Gibsons, as did multiple processes of appeal. So it's not really a he said, he said, oh, well, voluntary agreement here. This was a rout. 
This was one party being in the wrong, pursuing and indulging runaway wokeism, and being forced to pay for it. That's what happened here. That's the moral of this story. And that's the happy ending in my book to this years-long scenario. And occasionally, in our Woke Tales segments, the mob actually loses, and the good guys win. And we would hope that maybe some lessons might be learned, although lesson learning seems to be in short supply these days. But that's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. And this is The Guy Benson Show. Bill Malugin from The Border joins us next. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We are at the midway point of this Tuesday edition of the Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast, free and on demand every day. With us now is Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News, based here in L.A., but spends a lot of his time at the border. He is in Eagle Pass, Texas right now. And, Bill, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Guy. Pleasure to join you as always, my friend. I want to talk about a couple new developments down there that you've been reporting on. Before we get to those, however, I just want to get your response as someone with eyes on the problem all the time to what Vice President Kamala Harris had to say on NBC on Sunday. She is technically the border czar. She's in charge of this issue for the Biden administration. She has barely been down to the border at all. A quick stop for like an hour at one of the more secure areas of the border. That was it. A box checking exhibition. That was what last year when she was asked about the situation down there overall. Here's what she had to say in cut seven. Would you call the border secure? I think that there is no question that we have to do what the president and I asked Congress to do is the first request we made, pass a bill to create a pathway to citizenship. The border is secure, but we also have a broken immigration system, in particular over the last four years before we came in, and it needs to be fixed. We're going to have two million people cross this border for the first time ever. You're confident this border is secure? We have a secure border in that that is a priority for any nation, including ours and our administration. All right, Bill, I won't ask you to get into some of the policy and the politics here. I talked about it yesterday. The one thing that she has to say beyond just stating outright twice that the border secure is that we need a path to citizenship, like that's the solution. It kind of feels to me like they're stuck on talking points from years ago that are totally irrelevant and obsolete at this point. But just narrowing in on what she said twice, the border is secure. This is the border czar and the vice president of the United States. I know the audience kind of has a sense of how you might come down on this, but it still, I think, is extraordinary to hear someone at her level of government say this. It really is. And look, she knows it's not secure. She knows. Their own numbers show it's not. By any metric you look at it, the border is not secure. We've had the most illegal crossings that we've ever seen in history. And on top of that, we've had more than 900,000 gotaways since they took office. 
Okay, that's bigger than the population of the city of San Francisco sneaking across our border. Operational security of our southern border includes stopping people from coming in who would try to evade, right? And 900,000 of those people have successfully made it into the U.S. And of the people who are showing up, of the 2 million we've had this fiscal year so far, most of those are being released into the country for court dates years down the road. They're very little using Title 42. And don't take my word for it. Don't take any other reporter's word for it down at the border. Just look at their own numbers and look at what their own DHS secretary had to say in private. Last year, when it wasn't even this bad, Secretary Mayorkas, we obtained audio of him meeting with Border Patrol in McAllen, Texas, behind closed doors, telling those agents, quote, we are losing. If the border is our first line of defense, we are going to lose. This is unsustainable. The numbers have only gotten higher since he made those comments. Those comments were made before the whole Del Rio Haitian bridge situation happened. The border is not secure by any metric whatsoever. So, yes, when she made those comments, I think a lot of eyes rolled deeply into the back of people's heads. <laughs> yeah, and then you talked about those known gotaways, excluding an unknown number, an unknowable number of unknown gotaways, which is something that we always talk about. And I mentioned yesterday, I just feel like there's a constant rolling fact check that needs to happen here. It's north of 900,000 so far. Once we get the... August numbers, it'll probably be even closer to a million. And by the end of this month and we get the September numbers, it'll probably be at or above a million, a million people. I mean, that is a statistic that I think is staggering. And hopefully, at least my impression, Bill, is that it's such a big number, a million people who have entered the country illegally and gotten away with it, setting aside all the other categories that you talked about. That number is so big and I think so intuitively problematic that the American people listen to talking points and spin, whether it's coming from DHS or the White House podium or the vice president of the United States, and they cannot sort of align and reconcile the talking point versus a reality that when you're talking about a million people, it's hard to get around that, I think. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a staggering number. And look, I think – Most Americans, when they see the border crisis, when they see the families coming across, the parents with the little children, they they react differently to that than they do with perhaps the video we've been showing on air all day today. I don't know if you've seen it yet. The people in camouflage scaling down the border wall in Arizona. We sent a crew out to Naco, Arizona. And in a 45-minute span, we saw well over a dozen illegal immigrants, all dressed in camouflage, climbing over the border wall using a rope to rappel down, and then they go running off into the Arizona desert. Not a single one of them was caught. Border Patrol did not catch any of them. They were all gotaways, and they get added into the total now. And it showed just how easy it is. There was a human smuggler on top of the wall with a cell phone who talked to our cameraman and said, yep, I'm out here doing this every day. That's one tiny piece of the border. And it happened in the Tucson, Arizona sector, which sees the most gotaways of anywhere on the border. They've had more than 160,000 this year so far. So when people see those images, people in camouflage running away, evading, and then they find out there have been possibly up to a million of those people who have gotten into the country, I believe Americans would have a more visceral reaction to that than they do with these families who are turning themselves in who are likely just coming for a better life. I believe uh, the public 
will have a much stronger reaction to those Godaways numbers and actually seeing it on video. You know, it's, it's hard to get Godaways on camera, right, because they don't want to be caught. They're, they're sneaking around. They're evading. It's rare to get that. And to have that image today and to show how easy it is in broad daylight, it's not like this was the middle of the night or anything. This was broad daylight. They just climb over the wall and they go running off into the desert. And that happens all over the border every single day. And the Border Patrol Union tells us that is a direct consequence of their immigration policy. So many agents are pulled off the front lines right now doing paperwork and processing for these big groups, turning themselves in. They just don't have the manpower on the front lines to go after all these guys. Well, so a lot of people are just running in. And, and that's the point, though, Bill, because you're talking about the optics, and I totally agree there with your analysis. It's hard to argue with this idea that when you see family units coming with their little kids and assuming that they're real family units, which has been another issue down there, but you have real family units trying to come here and improve their lives and make money and uh, maybe send some remittances back home to the grandparents and just build a better life, that is much more sympathetic. I'm very sympathetic to those people, especially the kids brought here by no fault of their own. It doesn't mean that any of those folks have a right to be here. Sovereignty and laws still matter, but it's a more... I guess, humanizing picture. It's much more sympathetic. The natural human empathy, I think, of most Americans bubbles up to the surface when that's the discussion, when that's sort of the topic at hand, but they are inextricably linked. The other side of this, the much darker and more dangerous side of this, you can't separate them out for the reason that you just said, which is if you have a bunch of U.S. officials and enforcement agency personnel interdicting people who want to be caught, like these family units, in large groups, often choreographed to go over there by the cartels. All right, let's overwhelm them with a big group. They'll get caught. They'll have to process all of them. At that same time, very deliberately, other people who don't want to get caught have a much greater opportunity with fewer agents out on the front line actually doing the job. So one part of this problem, while I think more sympathetic or at least would evince more sympathy from the American people. You can't just say, well, that has nothing to do with the other side, because unfortunately, the the criminal enterprises that are orchestrating all of this very much use that interplay deliberately, consistently, intentionally. Yes? A hundred percent correct. They are both linked, and we've seen it in action before. I mean, we had a, I remember last year we were in the Rio Grande Valley, and we had a crazy drone shot. There was a group of maybe 30 to 40 family units being taken into custody by Border Patrol being processed, and we're watching them on the drone. And then all of a sudden we see everybody's head turn to the right, and they look down a road. And we turn the drone, and we look up, and there's a line of like 30 to 40 men dressed in all black sprinting across and jumping over a fence and trying to get into the country and running away. And Border Patrol was busy processing the family unit, so they only had one truck to go after a group of 40 men, and about half of them ended up getting away. And that's sort of well, thing hang, But hang on, Bill. I just have to challenge you because Corrine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokeswoman, in response to our colleague Peter Ducey a couple of weeks ago, said that just isn't happening. There aren't people just crossing into this country every day. Yeah, when I heard that, I mean, I, I can't even tell you what went through my mind when I heard that, but perhaps she should come down here and take a look herself. Perhaps anybody in the administration, Kamala Harris, President Biden, Green Jean-Pierre, should come down here, come to Eagle Pass for one day, just take a look at it. I don't understand how they think that they can understand 
border policy, immigration policy, of what really happens down here without physically being down here. Because I didn't understand it until I started covering it. It's one thing to see it on TV or read about it. It's another thing entirely to be driving down the road and see people running across the road or human smugglers arrested in the grass or wonder if every pickup truck that drives by you has a load of eight people in the bed of the truck. I mean, that's how it is down here. And until you come down here and take a look and talk to people impacted by it, you cannot understand it. So for her to make the comment that people just don't walk across the border, I mean, not only is it blatantly false, it, it's it's considered because there's one of two options there. Either she's just blatantly lying to the American public and trying to deceive them, or two, she simply just does not have any grasp of what happens down here at all. Yeah, it's deceit or it's ignorance, and neither one is a great look. It's probably some combination of the two. That is my theory of the case, at least. Let's take a quick break, Bill. Please stand by if you could. When we come back, I want to hit a couple big developments with you as quickly as we can. We'll do that with our guest, Bill Malugin, from the border in Texas, next on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back with Bill Malugin here on the Guy Benson Show reporting from the border. And, Bill, just some rapid-fire questions and issues before we have to let you go. Number one, this memo, clearing migrant releases into the United States after the end of Title 42. I know the Border Patrol chief is saying that it is unprecedented. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this was back in May when the Biden administration was trying to end Title 42. Uh, A judge ended up not letting that happen, but... Uh, Border Patrol essentially put out a memo saying that if Title 42 goes away, we expect to be so overrun that we are not going to have space in our processing centers. We're not going to be able to handle the surge that comes. Remember, DHS was predicting 18,000 people a day could start showing up if that happened. So they put out this memo essentially authorizing Border Patrol to just let people go, just release them. Don't bring them into the processing center. Just release them because they don't have the manpower or the facility space to handle that. And you heard Chief Ortiz say, you know, never in his tenure in Border Patrol has he seen something like that before. And we are moving toward the end of Title 42, whether it is official or sort of being done softly, sort of like a soft rollout. That's what we've been hearing from some of our sources down there. Meanwhile, the fentanyl issue continues to be at the forefront of this debate, or at least one key element of it, Bill. And I saw that in one particular port of entry in Arizona, they just seized, what, 186,000 fentanyl pills in one fell swoop? That's right. Once again, this was the Nogales, Arizona port of entry. They get a major fentanyl bus there, it seems like, almost every day. Um, Over the weekend, they had five separate bus in which they recovered 186,000 fentanyl pills, three and a half pounds of pure fentanyl powder, uh, and then over 100 pounds of meth. It was all hidden in vehicles, some strapped to human bodies, and some actually shoved up inside human bodies, body cavity smuggling. Um, So once again, uh, they had a huge fentanyl bust there, and that is where that rainbow-colored fentanyl has started coming through as well. They just started seeing that at that port of entry in August. Yeah, and that's what looks like candy. And that's just the stuff that they're catching and intercepting with God knows how much getting into the country, which I think is 
uh, one of the more sinister elements of all of this. And then finally, Bill, I just had to get your reaction to this. I know that you had commented on social media a little bit about it. One of the council people, council women in Washington, D.C., raging at Governor Abbott and Governor Ducey, blaming the border crisis on the Republican governors and saying something very interesting in this soundbite, cut nine. The governors of Texas and Arizona have created this crisis. And the federal government has not stepped up to assist the District of Columbia. So we, um, along with our regional partners, will do what we've always done. We'll rise to the occasion. We've learned from border towns like El Paso and Brownsville. And in many ways, the governors of Texas and Arizona have turned us into a border town. Well, as I mentioned when this happened, I think it was last week, Bill, the governors of Texas, Arizona, actually no governors anywhere have caused the problem. This is a federal problem caused by the Biden administration. But if that's where she wants to go and she's lamenting how Texas and Arizona have turned D.C. into a border town, you know, to me, it feels like that's kind of part of the point here of what they're trying to do. But it's not even close to what border towns are actually experiencing. And I know that you had a few notes of perspective on that. Yeah, it was an absolutely ridiculous comment. Let's put it in perspective here, right? Washington, D.C. has had eight or 9,000 migrants bus to it by Texas over four or five months now. Eagle Pass, where I am, a town of 30,000 people, gets 10,000 in one week. D.C. is a metro of 700,000 people. That is not even remotely close to a border town. 10,000 in one week versus about 8,000 in four or five months for a city of D.C. size. And they're calling in the National Guard and they're asking for all sorts of federal resources. Well, how do you think these tiny little towns feel? How do you think Del Rio felt last summer when they had 20,000 Haitians show up in two days? under their bridge and the port of entry had to be shut down. It's just a ridiculous comment. And the other thing I I, I find funny, Guy, is now it's come out that the city of El Paso is busing migrants to New York City as well. That is a Democrat-run city. And has New York complained about that? No. They haven't said anything about El Paso doing it. It's only Greg Abbott because he's a Republican. Yeah, no, it's politics. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. You've got a Democrat-run city doing their own sort of local version of the busing push here into these blue sanctuary cities because they're overwhelmed. They're like, hey, please take some of our burden. And all the attacks and all of the vitriol about how this is racist and anti-Christian and everything else that we're hearing from whether it's Mayor Adams or Mayor Lightfoot or Mayor Bowser or the various officials in these cities, it's directed weirdly – only at the Republicans who are giving them a tiny taste of the policies that they support. When the Democrats do it, it's just sort of muted, which I think, to your point, underscores yet again that for so many of these people, it is completely about politics, nothing more, nothing less. And that, I think, right there is a huge part of the underlying problem itself. And the only way that it changes or there's any accountability is if the American people decide to make changes when they go to the ballot box. That's my little soapbox moment here to close out our interview with Bill Malugin, our colleague, national correspondent at Fox News, reporting today from Eagle Pass, Texas. Bill, we always enjoy your time, your insights, your information. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Guy. Talk to you soon. It is the Guy Benson Show, and the final hour of today's show is coming up right after this. Thank you. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is the happy hour on this Tuesday on The Guy Benson Show, coming to you from Los Angeles. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free of charge every day on demand. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. And as always, this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, our friends over there. It's so good. Really delicious. Check it out if you haven't already. They've expanded hugely over the last six months in particular, thelongdrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. With us now is Larry Kudlow, host of Kudlow on Fox Business Network every day at 4 p.m. Eastern, so he's fresh off the air. He's also the former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. And, Larry, it is always great to talk to you. Welcome back. Thank you, Guy. My great pleasure. So it is really something to watch the spin from the White House today, as even a bunch of Democratic economists are saying, whoa, okay, this inflation report is not what we were expecting, not what we were hoping for. I saw just a little while ago, earlier this afternoon, Karine Jean-Pierre at the White House says, well, really, prices are flat in this country right now, and they're trying to put a happy face on something that I think clearly has the market spooked. Your reaction to the news today, Larry? Well, look, at, I got to tell you that um, it's, that's just pure nonsense, whatever they think they're saying. The reality is the numbers came in worse today across the board. Uh, inflation is unrelenting, and there's no sudden collapse that's going to get everybody off the hook. It is embedded in the economy, whether it's energy or food or shelter or rent or services or automobiles. It's there. The basic inflation rate is probably about 7 percent. There's no sign of it falling below that. The overall number, as you know, is 8.3 percent. And what it means, Guy, the reason the market's off, the stock market's off 1,000 points, um, it just means the Fed is going to have to be much more aggressive in raising its target rate and uh, selling bonds out of its portfolio. Much more aggressive. That's got the stock market spooked. Interest rates, by the way, are also going up. Oh, I mean, just like the mortgage rates. I was looking at those today, and I am just saying a little prayer of thanks that I locked in my number a couple of years ago because where they're going now, I mean, it's it's just awful. And your point about the Fed, that, again, is increasing fears about the harder landing, more of a recession-type environment potentially. These are what the concerns are for a lot of people, not just on Wall Street but around the country because, you know, look, recessions hurt tens of millions of people, not just, you know, investors. I think it's a point that's always important to make. And Larry, I do want to ask you relatedly about this. When you look at the numbers out today that you just referenced, core inflation, just some some bad misses on the expectations. And then you juxtapose it with what the White House is literally done today. They had an event today at the White House to celebrate the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which was this partisan bill that you were strongly against. We talked about that here. The CBO just came out 
with their final analysis a couple days ago and confirmed actually the illusory supposed savings and deficit reductions likely aren't going to happen. In fact, deficits will be up under this bill through 2026. And then the inflation number comes in, the first big inflation number since the Democrats passed this thing. And of all days, they're having a big, you know, soiree at the White House to celebrate what they've done. It's sort of breathtaking. Well, I'm sorry I wasn't invited to the soiree. <laughs> I seriously wasn't. I would have enjoyed it if you were there, too. But um, it's just utter nonsense. It's a falsehood. They're not going to fool anybody. Look, that Inflation Reduction Act polls show uh, overwhelmingly and economic models that it will cause inflation to go higher, not lower, because of all the spending on social spending and health spending and environment, uh, crazy climate spending. The other one, Guy, is the student loan uh, bill, which is probably unconstitutional, okay? But whatever, that could cost a trillion dollars over time. The cancellations will start soon. That also is inflationary. I mean, look, what they should do is help the Fed by – Cutting taxes, not raising them, by lowering regulations, not raising them, by opening up these spigots for fossil fuel energy, not closing them. On the supply side of the economy, they could move towards counterinflationary policies, and so the Fed wouldn't have to crack down so much and give us a terrible recession where the unemployment rate is going to go up to 6 or 7% at least. Right now it's 35 In other words, the Biden's fiscal policy is at odds with the Fed's monetary policy. There's no coordination. And unfortunately, working folks, as you mentioned, middle income, lower middle income working folks are going to suffer the most because of these huge blunders. That's right. And here's the upshot in all of this. I saw a tweet earlier from David Harsanyi at The Federalist that I think sort of crystallizes the political problem now that the Democrats have put themselves in. And it's actually tying all of these threads together, the inflation problem that they've fueled, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act and all this, you know, Green New Deal type stuff and all of that spending and the subsidies. And then the student debt scheme that I agree with you is illegal, also inflationary, also reckless. Harsanyi tweeted this, sure, grocery prices are up 13 percent, but don't worry, you're also paying for your neighbor's grad school degree and his Tesla. That, I mean, that is funny. It's very pithy. But it also, I think, really underscores the issues here, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Um, you know, the Bidens, look, all this woke, progressive, big government socialism stuff. It's kind of run for the elites, if you think about it. You know, pouring all this money into Silicon Valley semiconductors, pouring all this money into uh, electric vehicle Teslas and whatnot that cost whatever, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000, pouring this money into graduate students, and the rest of the country has to pay for it. They have deserted working folks. They have deserted the middle class. Yeah, that's why Biden's numbers are so low, uh, guy. And that's why I still believe that the cavalry is coming. I think it's going to be a two house sweep uh, because, you know what, you can't disregard the numbers. You can lie, falsehood, hold galas and soirees. But the reality is people know 
that grocery prices are way too high, electricity prices are way too high, new and used car prices are way too high, baby formula is not on the shelves. They know this. These are kitchen table issues, and folks know this. And that's why I think there's going to be a big change in November. I do want to ask you, relatedly, because you were constantly repeating the mantra on your show, Save America, Kill the Bill, and you were really hoping that your friend Joe Manchin, Democrat West Virginia, would stick to his guns and hold the line. And for a long time he did. And on a lot of issues he has, and I give him credit when he does, but on this one he just kind of out of nowhere seemed to sandbag the Republicans, surprise a bunch of people, struck this deal with Chuck Schumer. He was out there spouting off all these ridiculous nonsensical talking points about the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. It seemed like Manchin actually believed that this thing was going to reduce inflation and the deficits. and Just incredibly naive. It looks like the progressives are getting ready to try to stab him in the back on this side deal that he was able to, at least he says he was able to negotiate with the leadership on permitting reform on fossil fuels. So, you know, that is one concern, I think, in Manchin world. The other, I don't know if you've seen the numbers out of West Virginia, he was right side up, growing in popularity with a strong approval rating in that state and at least looking like he was in a pretty good position if he decided to run again in 2024 to win re-election. Since he sided with Schumer and Biden on this inflation bomb and this huge spending bill, the numbers have gone completely belly up in West Virginia. He's losing to multiple potential Republican challengers by double digits. His favorability rating in one poll that I saw is now 30, 40 points underwater in one fell swoop. I wonder if there's any remorse there, politically at least, from Joe Manchin. Yeah. You know, Guy, he and I worked together with others to kill the bill. And we killed the bill for quite some time. And we fell in love. And then all of a sudden he switched, he double-crossed us, and we fell out of love. He broke my heart. And the irony now, as you're suggesting, is the far left wing of the far left Democratic Party, they're going to double-cross Manchin. He is not going to get the permitting reform he wants. He may get it in the Senate, maybe, although uh, the West Virginia Senator um, Shelley Moore Capito has a much better bill they're rallying behind. But he won't get it in the House. He's not going to get his permits. He's not going to get his pipeline, and he's not going to be reelected in uh, 2024 if he chooses to run. His numbers have crashed. They will not recover, Guy. It's the most Republican state. It's the reddest state in the union, for heaven's sakes. And he double-crossed those voters. He will never recover from this. Larry, meanwhile, I want to get your reaction to this. I'm not sure if you saw the story, but 1,300 New York Times employees have announced that they will not return to the office. Newspapers trying to get them to come back in, and we're actually seeing this with employers in a lot of different places and sectors, trying to get people back into the office, and a lot of them just don't want to come back in. These employees, 1,300 of them saying, no, we want to work from home. It's more convenient for us. Also, it's too expensive to commute, to buy lunch, all the costs associated with coming into the office. It's too much for us. We don't want to come back. I wonder what you make of that within the – framework of the New York Times, but also just more broadly, how this dynamic is playing out, the quiet quitting phenomenon people are talking about, what it means for the future of work in America from your perspective. Well, I think it's bad for work. I think it's very bad for work. I think it's very bad, you know, for the virtue of work, but it's also very bad for productivity. 
which damages the economy. Look, you got guys in Silicon Valley. Go there. You got guys like Jeff Bezos, guys like Elon Musk, who are telling their employees they must go to work five days a week. And they are also telling their employees that if you don't want to work a 40-hour week, okay, five days times eight hours, they will be fired. They're saying go work elsewhere. I think those guys happen to be right. We've seen the same thing in the banks, the same thing on Wall Street. Industrial companies are working. You know, you got to show up to build these EVs that no one wants to buy at Ford and General Motors. Come on. The New York Times sounds like spoiled brats. That whole newspaper is in deep trouble anyway. They should go to work. And if not, they should look for work elsewhere. Let's see if the Times managers have a little backbone and spine. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, we'll, we'll see about that. Larry, a minute to go. You wrote an op-ed at foxbusiness.com. You had suggested here on the show just uh, seconds ago that you still think the Republicans are going to sweep the House and the Senate in November, but you're calling on Republicans in this op-ed to be more focused on an agenda, what they want to do for the American people. Just give us your thoughts quickly, briefly, the synopsis of that. Yeah, uh, look, Quit worrying about 2024. Let's just hit on uh, inflation, recession on the economy. Um, We need to turn open the spigots for fossil fuels to bring those gas prices down, electricity prices down. We need to close the border and stop the scourge of um, uh, fentanyl, which is becoming a gigantic thing. We need to back up parents who should be running school boards and their kids should have school choice. It's not hard. Just knock out four or five key issue points. The Democrats are wrong on everyone. And you know what? They're just common sense points. They're just common sense points, okay? And if they do, look, right now they're close. It's, uh, this business about, you know, this and Democrats are going to win. They're not. Right now the polls look pretty good. But the GOP can finish it off a little more focused on a broad-based economic growth message, close the border, Stop the fentanyl. Help the parents be tough on crime. Larry Kudlow, host of Kudlow every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern on Fox Business Network, the former director of the National Economic Council under President Trump. And, Larry, it's always great chatting. Let's do it again soon. Thanks, Guy. Great stuff. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show. I've mentioned I'm in Los Angeles. Last night, my flight was delayed multiple hours. One of those things where there was weather and you need to get the crew in from another plane. So you're just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then it was a long flight after that. But it's fine. I survived. I got in very late, like 4 a.m. on my internal clock. So I was bleary-eyed, showed up at the hotel, and it was still like, pretty bustling at 1 a.m. on a Monday, and I was very confused by that, and people were looking very glamorous. I know L.A. is where the beautiful people are, but I was sort of disoriented, and then when I was checking in, the guy was making a small talk with me and asked if I work in television, which I thought was kind of odd. I was like, is this a Fox News viewer? Maybe he is. Maybe he recognized me. I don't know, and then it turned out, no, he had no idea who I was. He was asking because the Emmys were last night, the Emmy Awards in Los Angeles. And I guess there were people 
who were at the awards staying at the hotel and there was some sort of after party, which also explains why he said the bar was open till 2 a.m. on a Monday. I was like, wow, they, they go hard here. I guess it was an exceptional situation. So my answer basically was, yes, I do work in TV, just not probably the kind that you're hoping for. <laughs> this was sort of my guess. Anyway, I wake up today from just a deep sleep, and I see one of the trending topics on social is Jimmy Kimmel, for whom we have very little love lost here at this show, and it's very fun watching him lose every single night to Gutfeld and Cat Timp and that whole team. But Jimmy Kimmel is a Democratic strategist who has this comedy show that occasionally does, you know, humor stuff. And I suppose what happened was during the Emmys, a black woman won one of the awards for writing in a comedy series. Big deal for her. Major life achievement and a career highlight. And Kimmel, who was out there on stage as some sort of joke or part of a bit, I'm kind of confused, he lay down on the stage basically at her feet pretending to be dead and remained there for her acceptance speech and was in a lot of these shots. It was very awkward. Very strange. I think many people found it not funny and distracting and disrespectful to her at this moment in her life. And I saw that black Twitter in particular, none too pleased with Jimmy Kimmel. Like, oh, wait, is he sort of a rude, self-centered jerk who isn't that funny? Are more people discovering this about Jimmy Kimmel? Perhaps. So he's laying there playing dead, I guess. And... I saw some of the photos, I watched some of the video, and I couldn't help but wonder if that was exactly how Jimmy Kimmel felt inside just after he lost in basketball to Ted Cruz one-on-one. Dead. Because I can only imagine that the humiliation was overwhelming, and it's something that Kimmel should never be able to live down. He might not be number one in the ratings or anywhere close to it, But he's number one in my mind of people who have lost to Ted Cruz in basketball. So there's always that, Jimmy. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour from Los Angeles today here on the Guy Benson Show. And California is, unfortunately, ground zero. It's like the epicenter for cultural and political insanity in this country. But a close runner-up is the Pacific Northwest, where our friend Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH, our affiliate up in Seattle, he keeps tabs on all the madness all the time. I'm surprised it doesn't drive him completely crazy. Here's part of what we discussed earlier when we caught up on the latest nonsense emanating from his home state. We just talked to Tiffany Smiley, who's running for Senate out there on the show yesterday. She struck me as very impressive, and she also seems to have some things to work with out in Washington state, where they're letting murderers back out on the streets while the police department of Seattle uh, crumbles and you know, disintegrates with people leaving the force, and you've got the teachers' union, what, canceling the first, what was it, five or six days of school with a strike? Um, maybe not the best situation for families and law-abiding citizens in the state of Washington these days. 
No, clearly not. We have so many problems across the state, and it would be one thing if Patty Murray was at least trying to address some of them. It might make it a little bit more difficult for some Democrats to justify jumping ship. But at this point, I, I think I could go up to any random person on the street, and 100% of them will not be able to tell me a signature accomplishment from Patty Murray. Maybe every once in a while you'll get someone who says, well, she's in leadership, but they won't actually tell me what she did. And the fact of the matter is she hasn't done much for Washington. And we can tell just from the ideas that Tiffany Smiley is putting out there, actually, and I know that this is going to be controversial, but punish criminals who break the law. Like, oh. these, are, these are pretty Slow basic. down there, Jason. I, I know. I, to me, they seem basic, <laughs> but I know it's like sort of this earth-shattering idea for, for folks, particularly in Seattle. But, I mean, the reason why she's doing so well in the polls is she's actually speaking to some of the issues. And the more people who actually hear from her and meet her they are more likely to want to support her than Patty Marie, who's just basically been absent from, from everything that she does here. And, you know, there, there was a CNN interview a couple of weeks ago. Patty Murray basically defends, even in retrospect, she defends the idea of closing down schools during COVID. That is absurd. That That is a dangerous position for anyone to take if you know in retrospect that that was the wrong move to simply say, oh, no, I, I still would have done it even in retrospect. Well, then you want to hurt kids. You want to harm kids, and that's dangerous. Yeah, and because – we have the numbers, right? The numbers were, in fact, recited to her in that interview. And she's like, I see the massive harm done to children, and I say no regrets. Yeah. And, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but not really all that far off from what she actually said, what her actual position is. Now, you know better than I do, or at least as well as anyone else, that Patty Murray is still in all likelihood – the leader in the race, the likeliest person to win that contest because the state is so deep blue, gluttons for punishment. seems like you cannot push the people of Washington too far from the left. They will pull the lever for Democrats almost instinctively. However, it's at least close enough that I think there's some jitters on the Democratic side. And if certain stars were to align over the next two months, there's a puncher's chance here, I think, for Smiley, maybe to pull the massive upset. I agree. It's not going to be easy, and anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. It is not easy for a Republican to win statewide office in Washington state and, in, frankly, in western Washington. It's just not easy. And the reason why, however, you're seeing some of the folks get a little bit nervous is not just the polling, which, depending on the poll, there's an anomaly poll that shows Tiffany Smiley within like three or four points. The other ones have it a little bit more of an advantage to Patty Murray. But people are wondering whether or not the polls are accurate. And when we're talking about statewide polls in Washington, they're not always the best. But there was this New York Times piece, I think it was yesterday with Nate Cohn, basically said yep. some of the same problems that existed back when Trump was, was going up against Clinton, they haven't been addressed. And I remember at the time, that night, I was telling people and bleeding into the election, like if Trump is behind by three or four points, he's going to win this because you're not getting in front of the average voter that we expect to come out for this kind of an election. And I, I 
I have that feeling with this senatorial race as well. Now, again, not going to be easy. However, Mm -hmm. if she's able to raise the money, if she's able to get in front of people, that's when she does well. Right now, she still has low name recognition relative to Patty Murray. When you're in office for 112 years, you have really high name recognition. But Patty Murray isn't really even breaking 50% in the polls. And and for an incumbent who's been in office for as long as she has, that, that I do think shows a vulnerability. Especially in a state that is so deeply democratic and so deep blue in a lot of ways. Jason, I mentioned the teacher strike. It's like another F you to parents to start this school year. Uh, Then there's the crime stuff. And Tiffany Smiley homed in on that yesterday during our interview. You've written about this. I see you've been tweeting about it as well. Some new social justice and I don't even know what you want to call it, reform, like criminal justice reform laws that the Democrats in Washington are pushing and have pushed through uh, really a, a boon not just to you know criminals or people who have committed nonviolent offenses, but to some of the most dangerous, hardened criminals in the state. And when you put that next to the police force in the largest city in the state dwindling away through attrition, uh, that is a, a pretty tough one-two punch. What can you tell us on those issues? We are releasing murderers from jail, and it is intentional. So a couple years ago, the Democrats in Washington decided to remove second-degree robbery from the list of felonies punishable under our three-strikes law. So three strikes, felonies, you get to go to jail for life. So they removed second-degree robbery. However, last year, they decided to retroactively apply that law. Which means now Roy Russell, who back in 2005, when he was 45 years old, he raped a 14-year-old girl. He attempted to rape her, and then he murdered her. He strangled her to death. He was sentenced under the three strikes law because one of his felonies was second-degree robbery. And as a result of this now, he no longer will be serving life in prison. There is a possibility, depending on how the judge rules, that he will be out of jail within three or four years making things even worse than that. You've got our state Supreme Court deciding that any young person who was sentenced to life in jail, and so for something like that, it's because of murder, you have to go back and resentence them, taking into consideration their age, because based on someone's age, if they're too young, apparently they don't know that murder is wrong. My full interview with Jason Rance, KTTH Radio, available at GuyBensonShow.com on our free podcast, the whole show on demand every day, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a bit of a milestone here at the Guy Benson Show. Plus, producer Christine, very pleased about something. We'll get into all of it after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. home stretch from L.A. on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com podcast free every day on demand as always. Well, it's a very momentous day actually here at the show. Even though Quiet Wyatt is off and I'm on the West Coast, we have to acknowledge that today marks one year since Dan joined our team and I cannot believe that it's been a year already. Like, in my mind, it's been maybe six months, but it's been double that, not because anything has been amiss. I just feel like time flies when you're having fun, when you're working hard, 
And, Dan, I have to ask you, on balance, how's the first year felt? It's been amazing. Um, I, I can't believe it's been a year either. It feels like a month ago I just started. But it's been great. I've learned a lot with you guys. I love working with all of you. Um, Cookie Christine in studio is a lot of fun. Learned a lot from everybody. And, uh, yeah, it's been wonderful. And uh, thank you guys for having me. You spent a lot of your career in sports, and sports radio, Dan Patrick, we talked about that. Two-a-days, your nickname over there. You joined here not as necessarily like a big political person. Do you feel like you have maybe gleaned some insights into politics and interest into politics that wasn't there before? No, I absolutely have. Um, I've learned a lot from you, um, you know, just monologues and interviewing um, Learning a lot who people are in politics and in news and in different news outlets and who who everyone is, like the who's who of the news of the world and the politics of the world. I've definitely learned a lot. It's it's a lot like sports, you know, there's different characters within the within the genre, and then you mm-hmm. learn who's who and what topics are what. Part of your, shall we say, educational experience has been trying to catch up on a long series of inside jokes and ridiculous references <laughs> that we make here. And I know we gave you a quiz on some of them a couple of months back. Do you feel like you finally have a handle on that? And do you think you'll ever fully understand the riddle that is producer Christine? Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like I've learned a lot of the inside jokes, which is good. You know, now one of my favorites is Why Why the Clown, which is fantastic and just great <laughs> knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think Christine will ever be solved. Let's say um, so, but I have learned a lot from her and and her expertise and you know some get rich quick schemes maybe <laughs> in my. You no, know, I would I would stay away from all of those and, uh, and, and, based and, on her outcomes. Yep, and uh, I learned the main thing is that I don't need more than one vacuum is really the the, <laughs> the top the top yeah. one until you do because you've thrown out all of your previous ones for the new one then that one breaks <laughs> so i feel like yes she she's always teaching in her own special way and christine do you have any message for dan here one year in well i'm going to relate this to sports dan um <laughs> as producing <laughs> as producing goes would you look at me as more of a tom brady or derek jeter Ooh, in the world of producers. That that's really tough for me because I'm a Yankee fan. Um you know longevity, I'll go with longevity with uh with Brady. <laughs> um that is no reference to anyone's age or anything of the sort. Oh, it could be. <laughs> it could be. Um but yeah, let, let's go with Brady, Tommy. All right. I, I like it. I like it because the goat. Yeah, he just true. called you I'm the so- goat. <laughs> I like it. I'm still here. It's been I've been at Fox almost 18 years. It's impressive. So, but I have to say, working with Dan has just been truly amazing. I've, I've learned a lot from Dan, and I've definitely, you know, my interest has certainly peaked on sports. And, you know, I'm just like peppering him with questions uh, on football now. And he has every answer that I need. So, yeah. So and, you've got like Bobby at home. Then you get into the workplace, mm-hmm. and you can continue your process of gleaning information about sports from Dan, who's certainly an expert. And did you watch Monday Night Football? I sure did. I sure wow. did. The Broncos and the Seahawks, I have to say, still on my search for a team. It definitely is not going to be the Seahawks because those costumes that they wear are obnoxious, <laughs> that color. 
Like they uniforms. should probably have somebody uniforms, whatever. They <laughs> they should probably make something else. <laughs> Because that is not a look. So that is not something that I will be wearing. So the search is still on. I, I'm about to like put a Twitter poll out there. Like I don't know what to do. I think I've seen them all now, and I still don't feel, you know. Do the that colors matter? Yet. Like, do mm-hmm. you want to make sure that if you're going to be buying gear, you like the look? Is that part of your calculus? A one thousand percent. It has to be, you know. That's why I'm okay with the Giants colors. Yeah, I think red, they're white, and nice, blue. But I just don't have that connection with the Giants just yet. It's definitely not going to be the Jets. I don't like the color. I do like a green, but I don't like that green. And just, I just save heard- yourself the heartache and don't become a Jets <laughs> fan. The, the Giants at least do things occasionally, even though it's been rough for a while. I'm not going to press you to be a Giants fan, even though I am basically a Giants fan. I don't follow them that closely. Uh, But I think what you should do is watch maybe a few more weeks worth of games, take some more stock of what you're seeing, maybe narrow it down to four teams, and then put out a Twitter poll. And people can vote. And fan bases can try to win your fandom. Or maybe strategically not, right? They'll be like, vote for someone else. We don't need her on the bandwagon. But I think that's something we should do maybe like three, four weeks from now. Put that in your notes, or maybe Quiet Wyatt's off today, but he keeps binders and records on everything. So let's revisit that in a few weeks where Christine can maybe narrow down her choices. Well, what if I, like, book a quarterback a week? Like, would they come on the show? You know, I I think that might be difficult. I think that might be tricky. I'm sure I could come up with some questions to ask them. I'm not a huge NFL guy. I know Dan could probably help with that. Look, how about this? If you want to pursue that, let me know. And if you get, you know, Tom Brady, for example, we'll put him on. We'd put him on the air. I'd consider it at least. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, you are celebrating a non-sports-related victory today, Christine. And it's not just that you haven't chased Dan away for an entire year yet. Uh, But this has something to do with a new term entered into the dictionary. And I guess you kind of want to take credit or spike the football, so to speak, here. That is true. Um, Miriam Webster has officially put the word pumpkin spice in the dictionary. And I have to say, I'm actually surprised it hasn't already been in there. But look, guy, it's just a win for me here. I've been telling you for years how much people love pumpkin spice, myself included, and that you're missing out. And the people, I mean, Miriam spoke. Is that, is it? Yeah, Miriam spoke. Miriam Webster. Uh, The thing is, I think that you're misunderstanding my point on pumpkin spice stuff. I'm not against it. I'm not someone who's saying it's disgusting and no one should try it, or even that I don't personally like it. My objection has been it starts too soon. My objection is pumpkin spice autumnal stuff in July and August. Once you're into the fall, go for it. And I have no problem with pumpkin spice being in people's coffee cups or in their dictionary. I'm fine with that. It's the premature arrival that bothers me. I feel like you've conflated the issue here. Probably. I mean, it's what I yeah. do. What do you feel yeah. about the word? What do you feel about the word janky? Oh, janky, like uh, sort of shoddy. Not good? Yeah, like poor yeah. quality. Is that one of the other words that they've added? Yes, yes. Oh, okay. So they, they expand the dictionary. Janky is a new one. Pumpkin spice, I guess, is a new one. Uh, what else do they have here, Christine? Uh, yeet, Y-E-E-T. 
It's a verb to throw something with force. Oh, yeah, toss. Yeah, to like to hurl something, kind of. Yeet. Yeah, I've never heard that before, but I just want everybody out there to know our show, the Guy Benson Show, ain't janky. No, we pwn. That's another one. Now I'm looking these up. P-W-N, a verb, to dominate and defeat. We pwn. The only thing is that that seems a little out of date. Like, pwn was a thing a while back, and they're kind of maybe playing some catch-up. Is Luke? Do they add Luke, L-E-W-K? Oh. Yes. That should not have been added. That's not a thing. Oh, so I do not. You're on Instagram. That's always a thing. Like when yeah, Instagram I know, but it's not. It's not a real word. It's it's stupid slang. That's just a different spelling of look. L e w k. I'm I'm opposed to that one. I should. Someone should give me some veto power on some of this stuff. Work on that, Christine, as well, please. While you're booking NFL quarterbacks, maybe get uh, I don't know the president and CEO of Merriam-Webster Dictionary. I actually have some political issues to take up with him or her if you're able to book that guest because they seem to change certain definitions of words based on the political zeitgeist, which I think is super creepy and Orwellian. And on that note, we do have to go. Done from L.A. today. I'm still here for a couple more days on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. Back here tomorrow, same time, same place. Have a great evening. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.